Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Mark. Here we are for another edition of Pragmatic Live. It seems that you and I are often interviewing each other, but today, let's just talk. That sounds good. We're both good at this. Yeah, <laughs> one thing we do well. So as you know, I teach the framework every every week, and you probably know the framework intimately at this point in time. I do. And, and so today, let's do something really unique, and let's talk about how pragmatic marketing uses the framework. Do we actually eat our own dog food? That sounds like fun, and we certainly try. It sounds a little scary to me, I got to tell you, because maybe we're going to show some gaps or holes in the way we run our own business. I think that's okay, though, because you know what, Mark? I, I think we're not unusual, right? I think there'll be parts that we do better and worse than others. And, and I think it's important for our listeners and our attendees to know that that's okay, that you know, no one is actually perfect. Nobody does the gap analysis and gets all greens and life is perfect. And, and, um, but that doesn't mean we don't do it, right? It means that we keep working on it. We keep prioritizing where we need to focus uh, and we stay focused on what's the most critical items and move from there. Do we do gap analysis? We have done gap analysis uh, a couple times since we've been here. Yes. Okay. Nice. And am I allowed to ask what are the big gaps? Uh, you know, I, to be perfectly honest, we haven't done it in a few years. Uh, but one of the things we were doing, we were actually doing it both for gaps and for role assignments. Uh, we had some, we have a, a variety of people who touch different aspects of this. And as you can imagine, we have, you know, uh, 12 instructors who are all have experience in this as well. So we often leverage them for different pieces of it. So what we, our primary spot was not just to find out where we had gaps at the time, but was also to make sure we had a clear understanding of who was going to do what. What expertise we had inside the company, where we could go get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where we needed to focus. Yep. Okay. Okay. Let's spend some time talking about the single most important box up here. And that's market problems. As we teach in the, in the class, if you don't know market problems, how do you do the rest of your job? Right? We're just MSUing or making stuff up. <laughs> so do we do market problems? We definitely do. So this one I can say proudly that we do. And it's really funny, Mark. When I first started, I, I remember getting ready to meet Craig and Jim. And, and it was like, you know, the, the big, you know, you've been here for 60 days. What's working? What's not? What's our plan? What's going forward? And I remember like I had done a bunch of market visits to understand. And I wanted to make sure I really wanted to get approval for um, budget to continue to do that. And I was like making this big argument up in my head. And I had PowerPoint slides about why this was important. And then I stopped and I went, this is ridiculous, like, right? These are the, this is the company that taught me that this was important in 2005. I probably don't have to make a big business case for this. I probably just need to say I want to do it and figure out what resources we need. Uh, but it was a big switch. It was the first time in my career that uh, I worked at a company that understood better than I did how important it was for market problems. And that's been really exciting. Um, and we do what we teach here in this area, the what problem are we solving? And we do it at the executive team level. That question can come from any of the seven of us and it does fairly regularly right let's go down a rabbit trail and all of a sudden goes okay wait what problem are we solving how do we know that's really a problem and that's a really exciting thing to see nice and so that they really give you back in 2000 when you first joined the company mm -hmm. did they give you the budget you needed to go do market problems and the time Yes. So uh, they were, um, so I joined the company in 2011. I'd taken the training in 2005 and they absolutely did. If anything, um, I maybe got in my own way. Uh, I, I had to really balance, you know, when I, my first two weeks, I'm a very social person, as you know, Mark. Uh, but my first, you know, I was actually like first 60 days 
uh, Jim, the president who was my boss, was like, you can't talk to anybody. I don't want you to talk to sales about the problems they have. I don't want you to talk to instructors about the problems they see. That's not what I want to have happen. And that makes complete sense. But that was hard. It was hard for me from a, a social aspect and wanting to go. And it's also hard because, you know, when I started, there was also a lot to be done. Right? So I need it. I know. I know I need to understand market problems and I know I need to understand the market. But I'm looking at a website at the time that was like, oh, you couldn't even tell what we did. And it, you know, it looked like it was from the 80s. And, and I'm looking at this and I think, oh, we don't even have this tool. So you could see all the to do lists and the pressure wasn't from them. The pressure was just from myself and wanting to accomplish stuff. Did they have web pages in the 80s? <laughs> they were like little green prompts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I saw war games. They existed. <laughs> okay, okay. So you are our, our, our VP of marketing. And in general, marketing people hang out on the right-hand side of the framework more so than on the left-hand side of the framework. Would you agree with that? Yes. Outbound marketing people, at least, we'll put yes. it that way. Yes, I would say that. I would say that if you're an in... Uh, some product managers spend more time in the, the bottom sort of center, but it's not the top left. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, so as a responsibility for the right-hand side of the framework, is your team doing market problems? We are. Yes. I wouldn't necessarily say in isolation, but my team, so this last year, uh, the members of my team are required to do six market visits per quarter each. Uh, so last year we we had a little over 72. Uh, we also managed a win-loss program through our, our department. So we had about uh, I think a little over 50 win-loss programs uh, that we did last year. This is these I'm saying these numbers because I'm very proud of them. They may not be big in some companies, but they were a really good improvement on our side. Um, and then we done the positioning documents. All of those kind of pieces have resided in our group. I, I asked the question because I thought it was awesome that you've got people that are doing newsletters and graphics out doing market visits. It's It's been really cool. So um, the first few years, I did the majority of them. Um, you know, I, I would bring them along with me occasionally. But, you know, if, if we did 40 that year, I did 35 of them. Um, and I would report back to them. But the difference between my reporting back to them, and they, they, they all believe me. They don't think I'm making stuff up. Right. But that different level of understanding when they've heard it themselves. The different drive to solve the problem, the the different level of understanding of it, the um, ownership they can take, right? So yeah, we do magazines and newsletters and podca podcasts and blogs and uh, even using the information we found to figure out what are the most relevant topics is something that they're they're far more empowered to do, right? It's much less about what we find interesting and what they know the audience finds interesting because they've talked to them. So it's, I think it's been one of the, the biggest um, improvements that we've had in the last 18 months. Wow. And I'm not sure if you're comfortable doing this, but can we talk about one person? Is that okay? Sure. So, so I want to talk about Norm. Let's talk uh, about Norm. Norm. I love Norm. He's great. Yes. He's, he's amazingly creative. He's the guy who puts together all the graphics on everything we do. What value does he get out of doing market visits? Well, I think um, he is great, first of all. I will agree. Uh, luckily, he doesn't generally listen to our podcast, so he'll never know I said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that makes Norman great is his a combination of just outstanding artistic skills and a really good sense of business. Um, 
of what we want to accomplish of of how important it is to understand the market, how important it is that something is as functional as it is attractive. And for him then to, to build graphics that, I mean, he could build graphics of any type, but we want graphics that speak to the audience. Uh, he spent, he heard a lot um, in his market visits about digital, right? And the audience desire for more and more digital. So how does he take the great design skills he has and that you really see in those print magazines that he does. And we bring that same level of um, high-end graphics, but to the digital environment, right? It helps him think about where he should focus his time and it gives him a picture of an audience that he's designing for. And I think both of those uh, are great. And it makes him, I mean, Norman is not like, Norman has never been just a graphic designer here, right? I mean, the ideas that he brings cross um, cross what he does into other groups. He's always thinking of promotions, always thinking about our sales and marketing alignment because he has a much bigger understanding of the overall business and market. He can contribute at a much higher level. And so if I were to ask Norm, are those market visits helpful to him? What would he say? I think he would say definitely yes. I, yes, I'm confident he would say yes. Nice. I mean, I only ask that because Norm seems like one of the people where market visits in most companies, you would say, I don't need my graphics people doing market mm -hmm. visits. And I think I'm missing out, right? I mean, I, I think, and I think this is true and we see this a lot. And I think part of it is as a company, again, we have so many former product managers. And so we've, a lot of us have done this in other places. And the information when you hear it firsthand is just it's such a bigger impact than when you hear reports or even different quotes here and there. You just internalize it in a different way. And the more people in the organization who understand that, the better. It, it is amazing that seeing something firsthand is so different than having somebody tell you what they heard. It is just incredible. It's like it gets stored in a different part of your brain. I don't know that it really does. But that's what it seems like to me, that there's just a, a, it goes from, yeah, there's a fact I can pull up to something that I um, almost emotionally understand. Yeah, I think it goes back to something you and I talked about when we talked about doing presentations once, and that is that emotion is such an important concept for people to remember and internalize things. If I watch you tell me about a problem that you have, you're going to tell it to me with your emotion. And that's very different than you hear me describe the problem that I saw. That's very true. It comes from a, a reporting of facts versus, a, yeah. no, I think that's a really good point. Awesome. Let's talk about win-loss analysis. So you said we're doing win-loss. Are we doing a third-party win-loss? Do we do it ourselves? I happen to know one of my fellow instructors has done a big chunk of win-loss. Yeah, so we've done it both ways. We've, we've um we have done it ourselves and then we have done a third party, but we use a third party a little differently for just that reason that you're talking about. Uh, what we do them, uh, we've used them for is to get recordings of the, to, to set up the meetings and to record them. And then we just take those transcripts and those recordings and do the analysis ourselves. Uh, it's more time consuming, but it was, I mean, as we teach and our desire would always be to do it ourselves because of that connection to the information when you hear it firsthand. Um, mm -hmm. But we just, we had a resource constraint. And so we were looking at ways that we could make sure we didn't lose the win-loss capability, but, um, and still have the, the quality of it that we wanted. So again, we have them record it. Um, they schedule them, they record them, they ask the questions. They're, we've gotten them very familiar with our business. And then we take those raw recordings and the raw transcripts and do the analysis from there. 
Okay. I often ask, uh, companies ask me when I'm teaching, can we do third-party win-loss? And I mean, I think the answer is sure, it's better than not doing win-loss at all, by far. But what you often want to ask yourself is when you're reading through the transcript or listening to the, to the recording, were there questions that you wish you would have asked? Yes. Could we have gone this way? And I think when you do use a third party, one of the things that, that I do as I manage that relationship is is meet with them regularly to kind of fine tune those things like, hey, um, and some of it's just like, you know, they may be more intrigued by questions about this, but we really want to focus on this. Or again, hey, I think you missed an opportunity. So you've got to coach them back and forth and you have to have a vendor who's willing to do that. So we use the same vendor over and over and over again, same person doing those win-loss calls? We did in the last, yes. Uh, it's a team, so it's a company, and there's more than one individual who does those, but um, they've done the majority of them over the last 12 months. Prior to that, uh, myself and one of the instructors, as you know, uh, had done a big chunk of them as well. And we still do, I actually still do um, a, f a handful of them a year myself. I don't know. It makes me feel better. <laughs> that it makes a difference mark but like you know like you feel like oh okay so i went in and i validated this is also what i'm hearing as and though i can hear their conversations i don't know what i'm worried about but um, perhaps a control issue it's that, it's that <laughs> emotional thing you want to hear the emotions i do and it's hard i think that's I actually think that's really hard because as a as myself and i know that this is true sometimes when jim and i are talking about it, i've talked about this with paul who who uh, is another instructor that we, we'd like to get all the data ourselves because then we would have we would have that emotional connection to it we'd have super confidence in it and it, and it, we just have so much faith in it but you know you have to find ways of um accelerating some of these activities when you're a small company and i i am confident that this is not a problem that we alone have that's for sure. <laughs> right? It's the same thing like we, uh, you know, of the, the 70 plus market visits, we had, you know, the majority of them, but not all. We still had probably 20 that were in person, maybe 25, are on the phone. And it's not as good, but um, it is sure better than not talking to someone. Absolutely. I find that so many companies when I teach don't do win-loss at all. And so we are miles ahead of most companies in terms of at least eating our own dog food here. Yeah. And then, you know, then it becomes the, again, we were, uh, as with every company, you always have more to do than you have resources for. But you, the other thing that you want to make sure you do if you're doing win-loss is, is that you have to solve the problems once you find them, right? So you got to have the time. You've, you've, or not problems is probably too strong a word, but you see, you see opportunities and you see things that you want to alter in the win-loss and then you want you need to make the time to make the change. But what's nice when you have a continuous program is you can make the change and then you can immediately start to get uh, feedback on that right. change and, and see the impact. I've certainly seen a bunch of changes recently that I think came out of win-loss, but, but let me ask you, what, can you think of something that we've done because we learned it through win-loss? So one of the things, uh, we're going to go deep behind the kimono, uh, but one of the things that I think I'm, I'm most proud of uh, is actually the win-loss effort that, that our instructor John did. Uh, we heard a lot about when we did private trainings, some friction in the um, sales process in terms of the legal documents. And our legal counsel here, Isabel, is great, uh, really sharp lawyer, but a really good business person. And she took that as a personal challenge uh, to how to streamline the documentation process and the contract process in a way that still protected both parties, but was an easy um, 
it was a much easier process. It was smaller, went from like 11 pages to two, right? Really streamlined that. And the, and the difference that has made uh, in uh, people's feelings and opinions about the sales process was huge. Nice, nice. Okay, I'm gonna ask the hard one now because I wanted to go through the top of the left-hand column. What about distinctive competencies? Do we, do we sit back and say, we know what our distinctive competencies, here, here they are, uh, we wanna keep growing them, we wanna keep emphasizing them? You know, it's funny you should ask that. So um, I would say it is something that's in everyone's head, but it's probably not documented to the same degree. And it's something that, that just came up in a, in a recent meeting to, to move that from sort of the, oh yeah, everyone in the has an idea that's in their head that they kind of use as a guiding post to documenting that and poking holes at it, right? Making sure we really understand distinctive competencies and, and where that can go. So it's, it's um, the formalization of that and um, maybe the modernization even to some degree is something that's, that's sort of top of mind as the current gap that we're, uh, that we're making sure we have shored up. It does sound like we've uh, done our gap analysis on that box then. Yes. So let's, let's focus on that one for a little while. Okay. Wow, Rebecca, we are 17 minutes in and we've not even finished the first column. Excellent. <laughs> Again, we can talk. We knew that coming in. <laughs> we might have to do this again. We might. But let's, if you don't mind, I want to do a couple more boxes just because I find these two boxes fascinating. Excellent. Let's talk about personas. I started with a P and you found it fascinating. I thought you were going to say pricing, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad you picked personas. But I I know more about how we do pricing than anything else. Yes. So personas, I'm actually really glad you asked this one. So I think there are things we do well on this and there are things that we don't uh, do as well. So we have personas. Uh, We have defined personas. We have, um, you know, the common problems they have, what a good day looks like, bad day. We've got pictures of the persona. We have this PowerPoint uh, that we walk people through. Um, Can I stop you for just a second? Yes. Do we have a separate buyer and a separate user persona? Uh... Thank you. That answered the question. Yeah. Yeah. I was good. Yes. <laughs> You're like a court lawyer. Thank you. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I withdraw the question. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think we have. And I also think we have this information and we have ideas and we, we teach everybody who comes here about our personas and we use them in shorthand, but they are not alive. So uh, they are we need to, to bring them to life. We need to make uh, like something like a cheat sheet or something that's more consumable for the sales guys, particularly who, who run into these again. And I think they need to go from something you know and, and it's more of a, a name tag to define a, a title set that again just becomes more live. That when you say this, you can picture that person. You can you, you have more of an emotional, uh, this is our tie-in for today, uh, emotional connection to them. And, and that is an area of opportunity that we definitely have. Well, that's why we do, at least that's why we do buyer personas Mm -hmm. is because we want to be able to touch them. We want to be able to emotionally link into their minds. Mm -hmm. Mind meld. Is that what we're going with there? (laughs) (laughs) So what we teach in class, which I love this concept, is that we build products for users. We market products to buyers. Yes. 
And so as a marketing organization, your team, it makes sense that you know the buyer personas and the people that are going to be involved in the buying process and all that makes a lot of sense. And so if we think about user personas for a second, we at Pragmatic tend not to make new products very often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't like we have to build products for users, but as we're starting to look at what new products might we build, it might make more sense for us to say, okay, do we have user personas? Who are we trying to build this for? And I would even say that we may not make new products, but certainly we work hard to maintain the, uh, to keep our current products up to date, right? And that's yep. definitely uh, up to date, relevant, um, uh, you know, where they, where they make a difference and an impact, that they're actionable, that we that the people who attend like it. And that is absolutely a user persona question, right? And, and you know, there's someone who bought that course, may or may not be the same person, but there's someone who's going to attend that course. And I need that per, both of those to be happy. Um, and, and I think that's where the user persona in terms of uh, developing our courses today is it plays a strong part. Hmm. Sounds like another gap. It does. You want to help? <laughs> if I say yes, it's recorded. I know. And I'll just play it in a loop over and over every time you call me. We're like, oh, what are you calling me about this, Mark? And I'll play it. <laughs> so I, I think we've been at this for over 20 minutes, Rebecca. We probably ought to call it quits for now and, and reschedule another time to finish out the framework. I think that sounds like fun, Mark. We'll finish out. We've done five out of 37 boxes. It could take us a long time. <laughs> yes. So let's let's do the following and let's talk to our listeners for a second. Okay. And for our listeners, if you thought this was helpful, useful, interesting, would you drop us a note? Because then we'll finish out the framework or we'll talk more about the framework. And if it wasn't interesting, tell us that too. And Rebecca and I can talk about something else next time we get together. Right. Or tell us how it would be more interesting. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I, I think I'm actually really glad you asked, Mark, because um, we're definitely, you know, we're committed to this uh, and we work hard on it, but we're not perfect. But I think that that's that's just life. That's that's how it is. No one's ever perfect at all of this. And hopefully people will go see they're making it work. Here's some hints. I should try this, too. Yeah, we are not perfect. That's for sure. But uh, but at least we know what we're doing wrong. How's that? Yes. Right. <laughs> and, and they're on the on they're focusing on getting better. That's the key. We're moving forward. Got to prioritize the gaps. That's the way it works. Yes. So excellent. Thanks again, Rebecca. Thanks to our listeners as well. And uh, please email us at experts at pragmaticmarketing.com with any questions, comments, ideas, thoughts, anything. And we look forward to having you with the next edition of Pragmatic Live. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you, Mark. Mm -hmm.